Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And when people say coronavirus is the greatest crisis since the Second World War, I would say think about the phasing out of the McPizza and I think you'll reconsider that ranking. so much for joining us on so i start a revolution from my bed and we're going to be speaking to johan hari who is a friend of mine an author a journalist and we're going to be speaking about so much in this like johan's favorite comfort films his comfort box sets if he had a smelly candle what would go into it we're going to be speaking about dahlia bowie joan rivers and songs that get him pumped all these different coping mechanisms that are going to be intertwined within the themes that we discuss this is about, as I said, mindfulness, coping mechanisms, not being alone. What can we do to just help each other out and also help ourselves out? But if you do need help, please do seek it. And I certainly endorse, and this podcast is in support of The Calm Zone. Go to thecalmzone.net because they're there to help. Also, if you need extra help, please consider phoning them. They've got the hotline of 0800 58 58 58 and a web chat. You can do that, and I urge you, if you do need to help, seek it. That's what they're there for. And if you can, please, please do donate to them. They're going to need the financial help, especially at the moment. So again, the calmzone.net slash donate. And any ad revenue that we might raise from this podcast will go to to the Calm Zone. It's the least we can do. They are doing so much for everybody else. So if you can, support them. They are supporting us. And let's get into this episode of So I Start a Revolution from My Bed with Johan Hurray. I can't believe I'm joined by Johan Hurray again. This is one of my friends and, and thank you so much for being one of the first ones to do this as well because this is going to be interesting from my point of view because I did the first episode with Sarah and my other half the other day just to explain the questions and now I'm wheeling it out. So thank you for being the oh, guinea pig so on this. Oh, so I'm breaking my quarantine to uh, talk to you. <laughs> how, how are you finding it? How, how long have you been isolated or quarantined? Well, I had a slightly weird experience. So about three and a half weeks ago, I flew back from Moscow. I was there doing some research. And I flew back on the plane and I sat with a group of Italians. I only clocked, I only remembered that they were Italians because I got chatting to them a little bit because... Um, my dad's from Switzerland and his village is just very close to the Italian border. And so I actually knew the place in Italy they were from. Anyway, got chatting to them, very nice. Didn't think about it again. A week later, I was walking home, having felt completely fine the whole week. 
And I suddenly noticed my teeth were like really violently chattering. I was like, that's weird. I've never had that before. And I thought, is it really cold out tonight? And then as I was walking home, I realised I was like almost shaking with shivering. And I got home and sort of collapsed into bed and basically didn't get out for four days. I had this raging fever. And then I got a dry cough. Um, so I'm imagining, guessing that I've got, I had coronavirus. Um, I phoned the NHS to get a test, but they said, um, well, because you're so young, we're not going to test you or testing older people. And because I'm 41, I was so thrilled to be referred to as young that I was like, oh, thank you very much. I didn't really, I was like, oh, if you insist. Um, so it's possible I didn't have it and I'm imagining it or it was, um, well, it was flu or something. But I think I might have had a quite early British case of it. So it's such a weird feeling. Um, yeah, it was disconcerting. And the last time I spoke to you, which was at Waterstone when we did um, Lost Connections, your book, you had TB. <laughs> so every time I've I speak to you, I've only been to... ill three times in my life, and all three I think I've discussed with you, Jason. <laughs> when I got food poisoning in Vietnam and nearly died, when I caught TB in Sao Paulo, and that was terrible. I was actually really ill that day, and um, and now now coronavirus. But I don't want you to get the false impression to your listeners that I'm like some kind of constantly ill person. Those are literally the only three times I've ever been ill. I thought it was just sort of come up in our in our interactions. So, so the premise behind this podcast, so I start a revolution from my bed, is to explore what it's like being on your own, being housebound, being cut off from people. Yeah. Um, how do you personally find it? Because you're a very sociable person. How do you find being on your own just generally? I absolutely fucking hate it. For, fortunately, I'm not on my own in that I've got someone here with me uh, who I live with. But um, it, for me... I mean, I just hate isolation. I hate being away from people. I'm deeply social. I'm an extreme extrovert. I love being around people. And uh, so I think I'm I'm probably in the worst percentage of the country for, or the world for, for this sort of experience. It just doesn't sit with me at all. Have you found you've got any coping mechanisms? Do you, have you learnt or picked up anything along the way? Yeah, I've been doing a few things. I've actually got in front of me a list here. I've been... Um, this might sound a little bit cheesy, but it has really helped me. I um I made a list of everyone in my life who has like meant something to me or helped me or who I've felt a lot about or I haven't seen in a long time. And I've just been ringing lots of them. You know, people I haven't spoken to in yeah. 10 years, 20 years. Like, for example, um, when I was 17, I had this incredible politics teacher. Her name's Jackie Grice at Woodhouse College in, in Finchley. And uh, she completely changed my life. A completely inspirational teacher. Um, just, I can't imagine what my life would have been like had she not had she not been my teacher. And that she massively enthused me about politics. She was the first person to ever suggest I go apply to Cambridge or anything like that. I would never have dreamed of doing that. No one in my family had stayed on at school beyond the age of sixteen. Um, and anyway, I hadn't spoken to her in about ten years, and I called her, and she was really happy to hear from me, and I was thrilled to hear oh, from her. Yeah. And so. One of the things I've been doing is just taking this opportunity to kind of thank people and, um, you know, call them. And uh, I've been finishing a book and I've been so I've been trying to kind of stay very connected with the things that are meaningful to me. Partly other people and relationships with other people, partly my work. I'm in a really lucky position in that I have. Obviously, I write books. I have a job I can do at home. And I was also in the lucky position with my research in that I'm, I'm finishing a book. I would have been screwed if this had happened personally. I mean, it's trivial to think about implications for your work or things when people are dying but for me personally it would have been much worse if it had happened 
six months before because then I wouldn't have been able to do my research, which, as you know, involves traveling Mm. and talking to people. So I really just got under the wire coming back from Russia when I did, because that was the last bit of kind of external research I needed to do for this book. So, um, yeah, it's been... Yeah, so, I mean, I've got various kind of coping mechanisms, a lot of which relate to your questions, actually. Oh, cool. Um, and, and that's why I wanted you kind of very early on in this in this podcast, because your book, Lost Connections, is pretty much everything we're going to be talking about, because it's about different people, different tribes in the, in the world that have had adversity, that have had been cut off from the regular society. Um, how important do you think that the themes of Lost Connections are to what we're experiencing at the moment with this pandemic? Yeah, I've been really struck that lots of people have been contacting me reflecting on the books. It's obviously about, <clears throat> you know, why we have such a big epidemic of depression and anxiety in the Western world, why it's been, like I say, I'm 41, it's been rising all throughout my lifetime. And when I kind of went on the big three-year journey of writing the book and meeting with the leading experts all over the world and people who've just been through very different experiences with depression and anxiety, I, I learned that there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. And two of them are in our biology, but most of them are factors in the way we live. And a lot of those factors have been supercharged in the last few weeks, right? And I think it's interesting. I think when I first wrote the book, some people believed it was controversial to say that, you know, our anxiety and depression epidemics are largely driven by environmental factors, by factors in the way we live. I don't think so many people are saying that now. We've had this you know, huge increase in anxiety and depression in the last few weeks for obvious reasons, right? It's not that all of our brains suddenly just got some imbalance. It's that our environment got really imbalanced. Everyone knows they have natural physical needs. You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs, you know, you need to feel you belong. You need to feel connected to other people. You need to feel you have financial security. You need to feel you have a future you understand. And this culture we've built is good at lots of things, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting those deep underlying psychological needs that people have. And that's obviously fallen off a cliff in many ways in the last couple of weeks. And it's, and it's going to be hard, right? And we need to be honest with people that it's going to be hard and it's going to be hard to get our needs met. But we can learn a lot from this process about what to do when we come out of it you know think about loneliness a lot of us are experiencing loneliness right now you know loneliness has been rising and rising for years a lot of people were already effectively in quarantine before this began and and we didn't do much to help them and I think you know um that's obviously one of the nine causes that I write about and one of the heroes of my book is a doctor named Sam Everington who just set up gardening programs for depressed people who were lonely, where they got together as groups, they did something in the natural world, which is a really powerful antidepressant. And there are studies that show similar programs are more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants, although they have some role to play as well um, for some people. Um, You know, I think for obvious reason that, you know, it dealt with those gardening programs deal with some of the underlying reasons why we're depressed in the first place, loneliness, disconnection from the natural world. And I think we need to think much more You know, up to now, what we've done a lot of the time is we've acted like depression is mainly a malfunction in people. And what I learned from the leading experts is, in fact, depression is primarily a signal that your needs are not being met. 
a lot of us are going to be experiencing that. Even more of us are going to be experiencing that signal during the coronavirus crisis for all sorts of obvious reasons. And I think we need to stop insulting that signal by saying the people who feel it are weak or, you know, crazy or biologically broken. And we need to listen to the signal because it's telling us what's going wrong. And once you hear the signal, then you can begin to build solutions around actually figuring out what's genuinely gone wrong. See, that's perfect. That's exactly it. And there's so many themes from Chasing the Scream, your first book, which also is, is relevant to this. One of the strap lines, I, um, I'll get you to say it, but the opposite of... Yeah, so one of the things I talk about in uh, my book about addiction, Chasing the Scream, is the the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, important though that is to many people. The opposite of addiction is connection. Which is, again, just perfect. I, I absolutely love that. That just summarises everything. And it's the same with, with disability as well, is that you'd be surprised how easy it is to be cut off from the world when the world doesn't come to you. And, mm. and that's why I formulated the questions that we got here. So let's, let's kind of get going then. The first section that I've done is about comfort because as I just said to you before we started recording I've always tried to say to people that aren't necessarily used to their own surroundings is make comfort an event set yourself up for it get the decks clear don't just squander your time just actually put your phone down channel in so have you got a comfort film that you go to that will that may be familiar relaxes so i find this really hard to answer because i find it hard to narrow it down to one so i'm going to cheat and then three very quickly go right? for it so yeah. the and this will only appeal to people who have a very specific sense of life and of humor but for me the ultimate comfort film is harold and maud have you seen harold and maud jason yes, yes okay so yes. people who don't know harold and maud is a completely insane film that should not exist and yet is perfect and incredible harold and maud is the story of a suicidal 17-year-old boy named Harold who meets at a funeral an 80-year-old Holocaust survivor named Maud and has an affair with her and discovers reasons to live through this insane affair with this 80-year-old woman while he keeps trying to kill himself in front of his mother to drive her insane. And when Harold and Maud was made, it was one of the biggest commercial flops ever. But there was one movie theatre in the United States that played it for like two years continuously that kept it alive and it's subsequently become this incredible cult film and someone else said about it i can't remember who um harold and Maud is the most life-affirming film about death you'll ever see uh, harold and Maud is just a film of it's got a soundtrack by cat stevens it's the performances are completely perfect but it's just such an insane and joyful and hilarious film and the last scene of harold and Maud um is incredibly profound and without giving away anything there's a line where Harold says to her I love you and she says that's wonderful now go out and love some more which I think about all the time Perfect. and yeah so Harold and Maud if you haven't seen it you'll either fall in love with it or you'll be completely repulsed and think I'm a psychopath um, another film I've been thinking about a lot during this crisis actually is Casablanca oh. um which you've seen Casablanca, obviously, Jason, haven't you? Totally, yeah. So Casablanca, I always think about Casablanca in in as like a polar opposite of Gone with the Wind, right? So think about Casablanca, people who, for the rare number of people who haven't seen Casablanca, just set it up. So uh, you discover this as the film goes on, but I don't think I'm ruining anything. So in Paris, in uh, Paris, just before the Nazis invade, um, two people meet. Rick, who's played by Humphrey Bogart, and Ilsa, who's played by 
Ingmar Ber- Ingrid Bergman, not Ingmar Bergman, that would be a very different film, but Ingrid Bergman, <laughs> um, and Ingrid Bergman believes her husband, a kind of uh, resistance, Eastern European resistance hero named Victor Laszlo is dead, and her and Humphrey Bogart have an affair, and then, and the Nazis invade, and suddenly she discovers that her husband Victor Laszlo is still alive, and they decide to never see each other again, Rick and Ilsa. A few years later, Casablanca is the place that people are fleeing through to get out, um, get away from the Nazis. And Rick has become this jaded American running a bar in Casablanca called Rick's Bar. And one day, uh, and he's partly involved in getting people, the passes to get out. And one day, Ilsa walks into his bar and he famously says of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she had to walk into mine. And he has to decide whether to help her and, and her husband, Victor Laszlo. And um, Casablanca is a completely incredible film for a million reasons. It's the best written film ever, I think. Every single line of Casablanca is perfect. There's a line where someone says to, where um, Claude Rains says to Humphrey Bogart, why did you come to Casablanca, Rick? And he says, I came for the waters. And he says, the waters, this is the desert. And Richard says, I was misinformed. <laughs> I just love that. So <laughs> every line in Casablanca is perfect. But um, but what I most love about Casablanca, the reason I've been thinking about it in the last few weeks and why I think of it as opposition to Gone with the Wind. So Casablanca is this completely incredible love story between Rick and Ilsa. But without giving away the ending, people haven't seen it. Actually, Casablanca is an incredible love story where the message is, there's things more important than your love story, right? Mm-hmm. Where actually they make a choice that's... Actually, we don't matter very much in this crisis, right? Famously, Rick says, you know, the problems of two little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world, right? Which has become a cliche, but is from that. Um, and Gone with the Wind to me is the opposite. Gone with the Wind is a film that takes... Um, the American Civil War, the monstrous crime of slavery... Uh, and reduces it down to this narcissistic story between Scarlett O'Hara and this and uh, the Clark Gable character. So to me, I, I think Casablanca is always a great film to watch, but particularly in a time of crisis, there's something liberating about thinking we don't actually matter that much, right? We're not that important. You know, you think your your melodrama and your love story is so important. Actually, there's more important things than you. And it's Casablanca is ultimately a film about self-sacrifice and choosing something the bigger cause over your own personal uh, preferences. And I think that's a useful thing to think about now when so many people are going to the front line for us, doctors, nurses, in a different context, but very much going to the front line. And the last one I would name is uh, the film Beaches. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, I love the film Beaches. Beaches is partly a film about overcoming narcissism as well and connecting to something bigger than yourself. So people who don't know... Bette Midler plays a uh, narcissistic self-involved singer named Cece Bloom. And um, in the opening five minutes, she learns that an old friend of hers has been taken very sick and she starts to drive to this friend. And that's when you begin to hear their story, which is that they, um, you discover all this in the first 10 minutes, so I'm not ruining anything. They they meet uh, under the boardwalk in Atlantic City as little girls. And one of them, uh, the Bette Midler character, is from a very poor family. And the other one, the Barbara Hershey character, what's the character's name? Hillary, is from a very rich family. And it's about the friendship they form. And then 
how their friendship transforms them. And of course, I think one of the things we're feeling in this time is we're missing our friends. And Beaches is an absolutely beautiful film about friendship, about how friendships can transform you, about how you can make you bigger than yourself and they can make you overcome your own flaws. So yeah, those are the three films that I would turn to for comfort at the moment. Also, oh, Beaches has an amazing well, soundtrack as well. But yeah, Midler's singing the song in Beaches. Yeah, Under the Boardwalk as well. It's obviously popularised again, The Wind Beneath My Wings, but I, the best song I think in Beaches is Bette Midler singing Under the Boardwalk, uh, the kind of classic from the, I guess, the 50s uh, or maybe the 60s. Uh, yeah, anyway, ama- all, all amazing, joyful, life-affirming films. That's, that's really good you say that because my other half's taken a mickey out of me because a lot of the films that I find comfort from are war films. She's like, how, how, how can that be possible and it's for that reason it's because it gets you a perspective you know the world is bigger than the sum of your parts and I, I completely get what you're saying that having a position of diversity can often make you humble to what you've got in a in a good nice way not in a kind of you know self-defeating way you know so, so it's, it's so true Jason someone said to me you know that um one of the th- in fact my friend Isabel Benke who's a great Chilean primatologist said to me you know, one of the things depression is, is feeling trapped in your own ego. And I think one of the reasons something like a war film would help, it's almost like the same as, very different, but in the feeling you get when you look at an amazing natural landscape, you get a sense that actually you're quite small and the world is big. And that's actually a tremendous sense of relief. It's, you know, the feeling of awe. Um, mm. You're big, you know, you're small, the world is big, and that's good. That's a good thing. You're part of something much bigger than yourself. And that's a very freeing feeling. How about a comfort box set then? Because this is this is a fairly new question because you know, I'm the same age as you and in our day it would just be a series but now we've got box sets, we've got them on Netflix, we've got them in Blu-ray. So if, have you got one? Yes, I have a very specific one and I wonder if you... Because we're the same age, aren't we, Jason? How old are you? Yeah, I turned 40 last month. Right, so I think this will be yeah. meaningful to you. It's Press Gang. Do you remember oh, Press Gang? Word. So <laughs> yes, I Dexter recently Fletcher. rewatched the, every episode of Press Gang from the start. So oh, for people God. who don't know, um, people will know Stephen Moffat who wrote Press Gang because he's, well, firstly, because he's a complete genius. But secondly, he wrote Dracula, the BBC, amazing BBC Dracula. He wrote Do- a lot of the new revived Doctor Who. Um, he's an incredible writer but press gang is the first thing he ever wrote and i think the best thing that has ever been on television i mean it's one of the things that's so deep in my sense of myself that i can't really get the critical distance in order to judge it but i but i was amazed re-watching it by how unbelievably good it is so people don't know press gang is a children's tv series that was broadcast in the late 80s early 90s there's five series of it about a group of when it starts they are uh i guess they must be 13 or 14 the characters and by the time it ends they're in them early 20s um who run a children's newspaper called the junior gazette and uh central characters are julia sawala who um people will know she played safi in absolutely fabulous um who plays the editor linda day who's this very stern and and there's a kind of central romance between her and an american called spike thompson who's played by dexter fletcher who was my total foundational crush um and um yeah it's the story i don't think i would have become a journalist had it not been for press gang oh Um, wow i don't have no sense of what my life would have been like without press gang but so press gang it's it's the story of this this newspaper but it's incredibly dark for children's tv series press gang it's it's very surreal it's very dark it's incredibly funny it's full of lines that i think about all the time i'll give you an example i was just thinking about today 
um, there's an episode where so Spike and Linda are this kind of warring couple who constantly break up and getting back together. And there's a line where uh, Linda says to Spike, "You and I are held together by a force far more powerful than true love." And he says, "What is it?" And she said, "The need to have the last word." Uh, it's in an episode, in fact, called "The Last Word," which is the the two episodes called "The Last Word." I think are the two best TV episodes ever written. But Press Gang is just, uh, and Press Gang has this extraordinarily dark ending. The last episode, "There Are Crocodiles," is just the most. It's this incredible culmination of everything that's come before it. It's so dark. It's so strange. You watch it and you think, how could I possibly, what could I possibly have understood of this when I was like 10 or 11 when it was broadcast? Yeah, Press Gang, totally incredible masterpiece. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. I would have never have guessed that of all the the ones. Because this one, I think it goes down in one of those series that, I think that only I know a bit like Chocker Block. <laughs> no one can quite remember the Chocker Block or the Flumps. So, yeah, I can't believe you picked Prescott. Oh, it's yeah, amazing. amazing. And if you was to have like a big, snuggly light night in, you know, you're going, no, shut the outside world out. How would you do that? Have you got lighting? Have you got little accompaniments that you have, like drink and food or anything like that? What would be your scene? So, as you know from knowing me for quite a long time, Jason, I'm really bad at relaxing. <laughs> I'm not a natural relaxer. I think um, partly because I just find so many things so interesting that I just, I never want to kind of switch off from exploring the world. Also, I think I grew up in quite a kind of crazy, violent environment. And I think a lot of people who grew up in that envir- environments like that uh, and families like that often actually regard relaxation and rest as like a thing to fend off. So I've been really work, mm-hmm. tried to work through that in my life. But in terms of when I when I do relax, I would say uh, a few things. So one thing I sometimes do is I leave my phone at home and I go to like uh, an, a faded English seaside town. I went to Eastbourne about three months ago and I take a little pile of books and I check myself in and I have no phone. I don't tell anyone where I'm going. And I just go for like three or four days and just lie in bed and eat massive seaside chips and read books and just try. Uh, that helps me. Um, what are other forms of relaxation that I do? Uh, my godsons, who are eight and ten, we discovered a recent game. We went to Nando's um, in the world before, and uh, my godson slapped me with some long, long stem broccoli. It was actually weirdly satisfying. So we decided to invent. Uh, we invented this thing called the food slapping Olympics. So we went to see Michael, and we just we've been on a quest to find out what the most satisfying form of food to slap someone across the face with is. It's actually gone quite painful on my face, but. We discovered, so we made predictions for what we thought would be the most satisfying food. And uh, so the most satisfying thing to slap someone across the face, we've discovered, we've now done extensive scientific trials, is a fish. Yeah, uh, I can but see that, interestingly, yeah. the second most, uh, and we did not expect this, second most satisfying is a croissant. Very, mm-hmm. or croissant. Uh, very satisfying to slap someone across the face with a croissant. I strongly recommend trying it. Just a regular or an almond? A reg- it could be a slightly doughy one, or it doesn't quite... If it's too dry, it's actually quite painful. But yeah, I so that's... celery. Celery would do it, surely. Oh, I don't think we've tried celery. I'll add it to our add it to our list. Right, you do now know that I'm going to sit here literally <laughs> thinking of... <laughs> so, I've got Milky Bar in front of me. I reckon that would oh, do it. Oh, yeah, nice chocolate. Soft chocolate. We didn't try that either. Good plan. I can't, 
can't <laughs> again of all the answers press gang and the food slapping <laughs> olympics well, you want something that's a bit floppy if it's something that's too hard it's just actually painful to be slapped with it so i suspect a milky bar would not be that much fun to slap. it's got no, to have a bit of true. flop in it or it's not it's not quite so, satisfying yeah. I would be thinking of what's in my fridge, but because we're in all quarantine, oh, yeah. our fridge is been, <laughs> it might as well have shoe polish in there for all the, <laughs> all the shopping we've done. So you, 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 it's really interesting you say that about your childhood and how that's formed uh, the way that you deal with rest and relaxation, because I do know quite a few other people have said something similar that um, I know obviously working in the drug law reform field that uh, people have been through abusive childhoods again their relaxation can be really difficult to grasp because they've got that flight or fight instinct pretty much always going on um so would you, would you say that you do struggle to relax and wind down yeah i would say definitely i do but i would say i would put it slightly differently i think that's totally a legitimate way of describing some people's experience for me it's more one of the things relaxation is is lowering your guard right you, you it's saying I'm going to lower all my defences. I'm going to lay them down. And I think if you grow up in a if very unpredictable or erratic or violent uh, circumstances when you're a child, I think, how would I put it? Well, it's your mental habits at that very formative age tell you don't let your guard down. Because actually letting your guard down in those circumstances is very dangerous. You can be really hurt. Um so I think I still have those mental habits. I mean, a lot, a lot less than I did when I was younger and a lot less than I did, I think, all through my 20s and 30s. I think I was really, you know, um, I'm much better at it now than I've ever been before. But it's, it's, a struggle, it's a constant ongoing struggle to learn how to do those things and to, to, to learn how to let yourself be vulnerable and unguarded and, you know, lowered into that mode of, uh, relaxation. The next set of questions is going to be sort of looking forward and keeping focused. Yeah. Would you have any kind of, um, bearing in mind what you just said, does that impact in, in what you do there or are you quite good at keeping focused and looking forward? Well, I think one of the, it's funny, one of the things I was doing in Moscow um just on the cusp of all this crisis breaking or it had already broken in some parts of the world one of the things i did in moscow was interview this completely incredible man named dmitry leontiev who's one of the leading psychologists in russia and he said something to me i thought was so interesting and i think it's relevant to your question jason he was talking about um so he said there's this big division between anglo-american kind of philosophy and psychology and russian philosophy and psychology he said so anglo-american psychology philosophy for a really long time has been built around the idea of pursuing happiness and making yourself happy right so even in obviously famous the americans the united States' founding documents the pursuit of happiness um <clears throat> he said russians hear that and they just laugh right they're like you can you know happiness will come and go and you can pursue it if you want but you, you won't get to it if you pursue it uh he said we don't think life is about happiness we think life is about meaning he said and actually if you build a system of meaning, that will carry you through unhappy times. And, and I thought that was so true. And I realised that to some degree, I, I have tried to absorb that, partly on some of the things I learned from my, because of some of the things I learned from my book about depression, lost connections, which in a sense, I think the thing that tries to get me through that is more, okay, what's meaningful to me and how do I pursue that meaning 
rather than how do I kind of chill out? Although, of course, I appreciate you have to rest. You know, it's, you can't have a life where you pursue meaning if you're not resting. So I'm trying to get that balance and it's it's difficult for me, yeah. So going to a bit of a superficial question, potentially, um, is have, have you got a, a live moment within the world? Um, so the examples I've gave to you is uh, Eurovision, WrestleMania, Olympics, Glastonbury, anything like that. Is there anything like that that's community focused that you tend to look forward to yeah i love theater and i've always loved theater and i was uh, i had tickets booked to see jake even though i might have actually had to be out of the country so i might have missed it anyway but um i had tickets for jake gillenhall in sunday in the park with george which is an incredible oh, wow. stephen sondheim musical uh which obviously is not going to happen now um although if jake gillenhall wants somewhere to quarantine he can come and stay with me <laughs> but um i'll break the quarantine for him but um yeah, I love theatre generally, and it's actually really weird that, that thinking that theatre has kind of been shut down all over the world. And I saw an incredible production, which obviously has been shut down as well, but um, might reopen if people were going to be in New York. Really incredible, weird production of Oklahoma. You know Oklahoma, the musical, yeah? The kind yeah, of Rochester Hammerstein yeah. musical. It was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. I must have seen it about three three months ago now in New York. Um so it's this production of Oklahoma, but it's staged in this really kind of weird, disorientating, stripped down way. Um, so the lights are kept on, it's staged in the round. And, and at first you know, it's like, you know, like they're using like deliberate, like Brechtian, you know, alienation, all of that stuff. But it's, it seems really odd because it's Oklahoma, it's this kind of American classic but it's staged as very strong. And for the first while, you're thinking, this doesn't really work. This is really weird. But as it goes on, so you realise that so the, the central characters are all sort of played as, you know, standard American musical kind of jolly people. But the central female character in Oklahoma, whose name I'm forgetting, is really freaking out and is really terrified. And you, first you're watching it, you're thinking, there's a real imbalance between the performance of the main cast in the performance of this woman and you think has she just been directed badly is she not a good actress but as it goes on you sort of realize that actually Oklahoma is really dark in its attitude towards this woman and it gets more and more violent and dark and you start seeing it through the perspective of this woman and it gets darker and weirder and there's these bizarre scenes which you realize are sort of her nightmares and so you're sort of watching this jolly upbeat story about Oklahoma and you're sort of seeing the madness and violence and repression underneath it and it gets darker and darker until in the end she's sort of covered in blood and really drenched you're sort of sitting there and it's really stayed with me it was this very dark strange production um of oklahoma that is sort of about the kind of violence underneath american because oklahoma is about ends with the declaration of oklahoma becoming a state which was a very violent process obviously and and you realize it's sort of like a production about the violence underneath american jolliness in a way that an american kind of upbeat it, it was really thought-provoking and amazing so when theater the thing about theater is when it's shit it's really bad because you've had something bad happen in front of you right so it's, it's terrible so like you've been forced to witness something bad but when it's good, it's amazing because to me, it's the, the when it's good, it's the greatest art form because you've been present at an amazing thing, right? So, um, so theatre is, is both the best and worst medium in that respect. We're on the looking forward and keeping focus. So, yeah. uh, the reason I've structured these questions is because I've always thought it's 
for me personally, being in the environment I am, attracting four walls quite most of my life, it's easier to think about tomorrow's another day. You know, what could we do? Today might have been a write-off, but there's always tomorrow. Um, so bucket list destination, you've been loads of places in the world. You know, you've already mentioned some of them. Is there anywhere that you haven't been yet that you desperately do? Um, it's a tricky one, this, because obviously, as you know, I like to travel a lot. Uh, Places I haven't been, St. Petersburg, I would like to go to. I was just in Moscow and it blew me away. Um, I would like to, I would like to, I would like to go to Wuhan, actually. I was thinking about it, I was really, I'm really fascinated by all these Chinese cities that are so huge, you've never heard of. One of the largest cities in the world is Chongqing, right? Who's heard of Chongqing? It's got like 25 million people in it. Um, I would love to go there. I looked, and also weirdly, I was looking out, I was thinking of going there. And, um... It's got loads of these enormous, what we would call council estates, but they're named after British cities. So there's like an enormous council estate in Chongqing called Aberdeen or Inverness, or <laughs> it's just really weird. So I think that'd be totally fascinating to go there. I mean, I've got like so many places I want to go. Um, the Yeah, those are the two that come to mind most quickly as um, places I'm really, I've got to go to Beirut to interview someone. I was, it's really oh, weird. Wow. In the alternate universe where coronavirus didn't happen, I just landed in Texas because uh, I was due to give a speech there and do a load of interview research interviews for a future book. So it's this weird, um, although I have been to Texas before and I loved, I loved, I absolutely love Texas. Um, the, yeah, so it's, it's, it's weird. I wrote a list of, um, I guess places I would like to go again, places that I most love uh, Byron Bay in Australia is a place I absolutely love. Um, Cape Cod in Provin uh, Provincetown in Cape Cod is amazing. I love Los Angeles, specifically Santa Monica. I've been spending a lot of time in Las Vegas for something I'm writing, and I absolutely love Vegas. Um, um, Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh is one of the most underrated places in the world, I think. Uh, for me, though, a place I most love to go, um, actually, there's a book I can recommend related to this, but is Berlin. Um, I mean, even if you don't have a personal connection with Berlin, Berlin's an incredible place to be. But uh, I had this uh, ridiculous theory, which I, is almost certainly not true, and uh, uh, could certainly can be scientifically substantiated, that I think in some ways a lot of us are drawn to the places where our parents were happy before we were born. And my parents lived in Berlin for a long time. My, my brother was born there. They lived in Spandau. And um, I've always loved Berlin, and I've always been drawn to Berlin and there's a book I, I people who obviously got a bit more time to read at the moment I really want to recommend a completely incredible book called Berlin Imagine a City by Rory Sutherland um it's one of those books where I've given it to loads whenever anyone's going to Berlin I give them this book and um that it's one of those books where if you give it to people they always come back and talk about how they're blown away about it it's one of those books you don't tell someone too much about what it's about but um Berlin Imagine a City is 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 um it's the story of 25 different people at different points in the history of Berlin. And I'm guessing about half of them you would have heard of. President Kennedy, Marlena Dietrich, David Bowie, uh, Joseph Goebbels. And about half of them I had never heard of. Um, but as you read it, it becomes this cumulative... I mean, it's unbelievably well written. But it becomes this cumulative portrait of Berlin as a place and what it means to the world. I'll give you an example of a story in it. I haven't read the book in a couple of years, so I might be getting some of the details wrong, but I'll get the gist of it right. So, obviously, I'm guessing everyone listening knows the David Bowie song, Heroes. One of my favourites. Um, incredible song. So, for people who don't know the background to it, obviously, when the wall was built, the wall was built pretty quickly. 
Um, and there was a death strip. Quite quickly, they had to build a death strip. So if you tried to flee from the east, you 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 ran through the death strip and you tried to get over the wall the other side into West Berlin, which is where my parents lived. And um, Heroes is the story of a couple who tried to reunite across the death strip and died that Bowie heard when he was living in, famously lived in Berlin, West Berlin, and kind of reinvented himself in the early 70s. And Bowie has this period in Berlin that's really important to him. I've actually talked about it with his friend, um, Brian Eno, who's one of the most amazing people ever. Um, and and um, anyway, so has this really important period of his life in the 70s. In 1987, Bowie goes back to Berlin to perform a concert in front of the Brandenburg Gate, obviously on the west side of the wall. And he performs this concert and he sings Heroes, which is a song about the wall. And, people, and these two real people who died there, not far actually from the Brandenburg Gate, I think. And as Bowie is singing to this huge audience that's gathered in front of the Brandenburg Gate, he realises something and he's confused. You can actually watch it on, online. You can see he looks confused for a moment. And, and the reason he's confused is because he's realised that people aren't only singing in front of him on the west side of the wall, that there's singing coming behind him and that people had gathered on the eastern side of the wall, which was, of course, illegal in East Germany, unauthorised gatherings. And so you've got the, the people of Berlin united on both sides of the wall singing this song about a couple trying to get across the wall. And this is 1987, it's two years before the wall is torn down. Um, and late in his life, Bowie names this as this really profound moment. And of course, when the wall is torn down, he comes back and in the same place in front of the Brandenburg Gate, he sings this same song, but this time the people who were cut off on the eastern side of the wall are in the crowd and in the audience. And to me, that's such a story about hope. You know, when I think about Berlin when I was a child, you know, the Berlin Wall seemed like, you know, we grew up expecting there to be a nuclear war, thinking about the the division of Berlin seemed like such an inextricable thing. And the, uh, the only time I've ever seen my father cry, the, the one time in my whole life I've ever seen my dad cry, was when I was, well, I was 10 years old and I came home and uh, he was watching the news and he was crying. And I thought, oh, my God, is it like someone in my family died or something. It was so out of character for my dad to cry. And they people were tearing down the Berlin Wall. And he and didn't really understand it. But he said, you know, when you're older, you'll understand. I can't do my dad's got a very strong German voice. When you're, understand, when you're older, you'll understand your hand. This is so important, he said. And, um, and I do now. Yeah. So anyway. Um, Berlin, I think, is the place I most... If you could say, yeah, you can go on any plane. Coronavirus has suddenly ended. You can get on any plane anywhere. Where are you going to go? I would get on a plane to Berlin. And I know exactly the walk I would do through Kreuzberg. Um, I would go and see my friends in, in Kreuzberg and in and in Prasloyerberg and, and Mitte. And, yeah, anyway, I love Berlin. See, um, that, that story, that, that story of Bowie just gave me a massive goosebumps. forget it's important to take a breath so let's breathe and also don't forget that it's important to reach out to the people around you if you need it there's always someone willing to listen and that's what the calmzone.net do as well they're there to help if you need a helpline go to 0800 585858 and they can also do a web chat 
And if you can spare anything, they really need the financial support. So the calmzone.net slash donate. There's 125 people on average dying by suicide a week. So let's keep these conversations going. Let's talk about our mental health. Thank you so much. And if you can donate, please do. Which kind of badly leads me into my next set of questions, <laughs> which is which is nostalgia, because that's always been important to me personally. Is I mean, I don't know if you can see just over my shoulder on the dresser, we've got the oh, yeah. little yellow teapot. Yeah, that's it, know? yeah. That's for some reason, Sarah's got it pride of place just up there. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's now speaking to me. Um, have you got anything like that, like a f- favourite childhood toy that you've got really fond memories of? Well... When I was a child, I was obsessed with He-Man. Do you remember He-Man? Oh, my word, yeah, one of my top five. I do slightly wonder how my parents didn't realise I was gay, given that I was, like, obsessed with this, like, super ripped, muscly, like... (laughs) And I was, like, obsessed as a child. Um, So I I guess it would have to be He-Man, although I recently watched an episode of He-Man with my godsons, and I don't think I had realised. So maybe I'm completely misreading this, it seemed to me quite clear that Skeletor is meant to be gay. Like, he's really camp. When you listen to his voice, he's really camp. He's like, sort of ogles He-Man at various points. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I'm sure I would not have known this as like a seven-year-old child. I wouldn't have had any concept of it. But um, it is, and I always did instinctively, although I thought He-Man, I was kind of, um, you don't have a crush on, I was too young to have a crush on him, but I sort of, was like enraptured by and fascinated by He-Man. I was always basically on the side of Skeletor, who I thought was a much more interesting person than than He-Man, and a much more uh, I sort of admi- I, I was sort of obsessed with He-Man, but I admired Skeletor more. So I think I would choose uh, He-Man and Skeletor as my my childhood obsession. I, th- I think as well, Hey Man was weird because it's very moralistic. It always it always ended on a on a moral point, didn't it? Yeah. Which, which as a kid, it didn't always grasp. But because <laughs> I'm the same as you, I I kind of err towards the baddies in in some sort of way because I I always used to get a little bit too sickly with with like the the really right. goody goodies, like right. Darth Vader. Loved him. I remember as a child, uh, a friend of mine in the Edgware McDonald's had a Care Bears birthday party. And I remember hating the Care Bears. And I remember very clearly, I apologise if the person is listening, I remember walking up to the Care Bear and just really kicking him in the balls and just saying, <laughs> I hate the Care Bears. Go back to care a lot. I hate you. And um, that man must have really despised me. What can I say? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you the other childhood um, figure that I was obsessed with is... is um, Grimace, the giant purple thing that was friends with Ronald McDonald. Oh, yeah, who, yeah. Who, I've always been interested in the psychology of Grimace because Grimace was created as an ally of the Hamburglar. Uh, but then they phased out the Hamburglar, but people were upset that Grimace was gone. So they reunited. So basically Grimace defected and joined Ronald McDonald and his gang. Oh, wow. I've always thought he's like the Benedict Arnold of the McDonald's world. I've always thought he must feel, um, or the Kim Philby or something, he must feel really conflicted about that. And I've subsequently seen Grimace in many weird places in the world. So next to the Dead Sea in Israel 
there's the lowest McDonald's in the world, which describes itself with that way, which I always thought was slightly comical in itself. But there's a huge image of Grimace next to the Dead Sea. And then in the tunnels underneath Las Vegas, the drainage tunnels underneath Las Vegas, a lot of people live there. There's a huge mural of Grimace. And I feel like sort of, I was obsessed with Grimace as a child and he sort of slightly followed me around the world in this slightly <laughs> weird, psychologically conflicted way. Although I don't, I don't think that's literally, I want to be clear to any psychiatrist listening, I don't think that's literally true. I've I've got him up in front of me now. And yeah, yeah, he's he's an interesting character. Anyway, I, I think I used to get him mixed up as well with the Monster Munch. I think he kind of kind of could have slipped in uh, there a bit. That's a crucial error. Yeah, it's a shocking I, mistake. I, I never had McDonald's as a kid because I just <gasps> even then even then I didn't want it. I just I was like no, I'm, I I just because I was into karate and things. I I was always like trying to be health conscious. Oh so, my god, there's a fundamental division between your childhood and mine. My, <laughs> my mother's attitude to all things was. Why aren't you eating junk food and why aren't you watching television? Was kind of how I tried to approach her. So like, no, McDonald's was like my st- KFC, McDonald's. They were like my staple. Uh, I, I I would say the foundational trauma of my life, Jason, is I've never recovered from the phasing out of the McPizza. Oh right, in, yeah, I yeah. believe it was in 1996 because I can remember where I was. I remember going into the mcdonald's in wealdstone in north london and saying i'll have a mcpizza please and me and my friend alex and the person behind the counter said you can't have a mcpizza and i said oh are you out of stock she said no we've stopped doing them and i said i'll go to another mcdonald's she said, you can't there are no mcdonald's left that sell mcpizza it has stopped and i remember in my memory i sort of sink to my knees going no <laughs> no but yeah, that was, I'd say I've never recovered from that moment. And when people say coronavirus is the greatest crisis since the Second World War, I would say, think about the phasing out of the McPizza. <laughs> and I think you'll reconsider that ranking. Okay, if we're going to do any kind of quotes, that's going to be it. <laughs> exactly. This is going to be the standout moment of this show. Exactly, exactly. So would you say that Hey Man was also your your you know, your TV programme of your childhood? Would you say that that was the, even though you, did you, did you have the figures? Of course, I had Castle Grayskull, and I had. Oh my Beast god, Man. you was one of those kids. That they yeah. were legendary kids because that was I like hundred quid or something. And I, well, I basically extorted it out of my mother by, like, literally refusing to eat until she bought me Castle Grayskull. Wow. Um, and I had I had Beast Man. I had Orko. Yeah. I can remember the. I had the Sorceress. Orko came with a little magic trick, didn't he? Oh, did he? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, a little uh, little coin trick he came with, and he oh. had like a, a cord that you ripped, and then he danced about on the table. I remember the cord that you ripped out. I have a very strong memory of that, but I don't remember the other. That's very interesting. Yeah, hmm. I used to use them as wrestling figures because they were really good. Because uh, the the wrestling figures were rubbish, so they actually worked better. Um, right, so, right. so on the on the point of nostalgia, have you got a favourite game? That, that you played it could be board it could be car card computer anything like that it can be a party game anything like that Do you know, I had a very interesting experience with this because my um, one of my godsons uh, I played for, for, this was about six months ago we were, he became obsessed with Fortnite so we played it for like a whole weekend at the end of the weekend I said hey do you want to see what video games were like when I was uh, your age and he's like yeah yeah so we pulled up Frogger and we played Frogger for about two minutes and he turned to me absolutely sincerely he's eight put his hand on mine and said johan i'm so sorry things were so shit when you were little <laughs> <laughs> i was completely devastated by how shit it was so um no i made a very conscious decision when i turned 18 
to never play video games again. Not because I don't like them, but because I find them so compelling. I still have dreams where I play Bubble Bobble and Mario Kart and um, Rainbow Islands and uh, Tetris. Like, I, so I broke it for 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 Fortnite with my God Godson's back. That feels like almost like a whole other thing. Fortnite. It's like so. I mean, the gap between Frogger and Fortnite is so great that, like, yeah. And to finish on the nostalgia points, again, nostalgia to me has always been quite important uh, because um, not everyone's got a good childhood, but um, I, I do think back because I was treated really well by my parents. You know, I was very loved. So the feelings of warmth and just looking back have always been quite important to me, hence why I've kind of structured nostalgia because if I've, if I've got had a, a bad pain day or a bad day where I've not been able to get out... Uh, drawing upon memories is quite important to me. Um, so, but have you got a period in history that you're particularly fascinated by, or if you, if you, we, I, I originally structured this if you wanted to live, but if you wanted to do like a quantum leap where you could be there, insert yourself for a while and experience it, is there a period of history that particularly fascinates you? There's loads. I think it depends what you would want, isn't it? I mean, I'm fascinated by. Actually, one of the things that's most moved me in the last um, couple of weeks has been I, I stumbled across on the internet, uh, people can see it on my Twitter feed if they want to see it, um, this incredible footage of London. It's the oldest known colour footage of London, and it's from uh, 96 years ago. Um, because I've lived in London almost all my life, apart from when I'm in the US, um, my parents moved here when I was a baby, um, it's so strange because you look at it and it is very recognisably our London. Right, like it, 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 and there's something about the incredible continuities of life in London. I recently read um, The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope, which is set in the 1880s and I think must have been written relatively soon afterwards. And again, you, you just realise, oh, that's our London. Like you, he, he, at one point they're talking about walking through Angel and they talk about the streets. Like, I remember that's I know that street, right? Like, it's, so the, the continuities of life in London I find completely incredible. So I would love to go back to moments in the past of our city and see. I mean, obviously there's the moments of great kind of moral clarity and bravery, like the Blitz. But and and uh, and that is that would be an amazing time to see, although provided you don't get blown up. But. Um, and actually one of my favourite novels is set during London in the Blitz and um, um, I, anyone who hasn't read The Heart of the Matter by by um, by Graham Greene, I can't recommend it highly enough, but um, I guess it would be different moments. I would love to go back to the pre-plague era, you know, areas around the plague in London around that time that, yeah, history of London, I could, almost any period from when you know, Romans first come and build on the you know, side of the Thames to, to you know, day before yesterday would be just incredible to go back to. Yeah, London is a kind of miracle. And um, I think one of the reasons I was so moved looking at it was thinking, you know, catastrophes come and they leave, they end. But look, London goes on, right? Like, London feels like this. there's an incredible poem by Borges, um about Buenos Aires, uh, where he lived all his life, where he, he talk, um, I think it's just called Buenos Aires, where he talks about the idea, he describes the different parts of Buenos Aires, which is itself an incredible city. And he says, um, uh, he says it better than this, but he talks about the idea that Buenos Aires seems to him to be eternal, as eternal as the air. 
And to me, London feels like that. It feels to be an eternal place. You can't, I can't conceive of a world without London. And I almost can't conceive of a world before London. Although, of course, you know, go back a bit more than 2,000 years and there was a place before London. Um, so, yeah, moments in the history of London I would, I would uh, love, to, love to visit. The next section of questions is appreciation. So yeah. again, being being grateful of what you've got because it's always been important to me to look around, and we, we've drawn upon these themes ourselves when we said about you know seeing adversity, the wars, and things like that, and then looking around, you go actually things are all right right now. Things are all right. Mm-hmm. Um, so senses are quite important to me. And if you was to be, I, I'm rubbish. I've, I've I'm totally not a male in the usual context i've got all the kind of candles and all that sort of thing i i really don't go by i'm my other half always jokes all the time that i don't abide by gender stereotype <laughs> so i like a smelly candle if you used to have your smells that you love to go into a smelly candle what would they be kfc chicken be a six piece actually i can't even say this because it's making me so hungry a six piece um chicken box with the fries and the, I just have a hint of the coleslaw, the smell of the coleslaw as well. Um, I think wow. I, I think I, we've talked about this before, Jason, but I had this terrible, <laughs> real low point in my life was Christmas Eve 2009. I went into my local KFC, which was at, um, the Bethnal Green end of Brick Lane, where I lived for a long time. And I went in, it was lunchtime, and I, and I said my standard order, which is so disgusting, I won't even repeat it. And... The person behind the counter said, oh, Johan, I'm really glad you're here. Hang on a minute. I was like, all right. And he went off behind the where they fried the chicken and everything. And he came back with the other two members of staff. And they had bought me a massive Christmas card in which they'd written to our best customer. And everyone had signed it with little in-jokes about me and my orders and what I talked about. And I just thought, fucking hell, this is a bad sign. And I remember thinking, one of the reasons my heart sank is I thought... This isn't even the fried chicken shop I come to the most, right? <laughs> so it's like this is a grim moment in my. So after that, I stopped for a long time and I lost a lot of weight. And now I've only slightly relapsed on KFC. So I'll have one about once a month. Um, but the fact that there is no KFC in Britain now, I could not get a KFC no matter how much I tried, does feel almost like existentially disorientating <laughs> to me, right? It's like, what happened? Uh, so yeah, I would have a KFC candle, no question. I, I, you can almost see that going on the market, couldn't you? <laughs> you think someone's going to come up with that? Yeah. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, th- this next question, I can imagine you could talk for hours. You could probably do a whole podcast on this, but a book that's helped you or that you've particularly connected to? I mean, there's so many. Um books that will help people i would recommend a completely amazing book i read recently called the anatomy of a moment by the spanish writer javier circas c-e-r-c-a-s it's about this this it's a completely incredible book but it's about this 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 moment that happened in spanish history that i don't think i even knew had happened so in 1981 so you know about five or six years into the transition to democracy in spain a group of fascist gunmen who uh, were nostalgic for the previous fascist dictator, uh, Francisco Franco, uh, burst into the Cortes, the Spanish parliament, when they were in the middle of swearing in the new prime minister. And they fired into the ceiling and they held everyone hostage. And they it was part of an organised coup attempt to reimpose fascism on Spain. And they ordered all of the senators to get down on the ground. And all of them did it except for three men who remained standing and in their different ways challenged the gunmen. And they were the three most unlikely people to challenge fascism at that moment, right? I don't want to give away too much about who they were, but the the book is the story of this moment of who these men were. It then tells the stories of their lives, which are completely incredible. And if it was a fiction, you just couldn't believe it, how they were interconnected. And one of them was the leader of the washed up, despised leader of the Communist Party. One of them was the washed up, despised, outgoing um, prime minister. And one of them was the washed up, hated defence secretary who had been a close ally of Franco. And these three men were the people who took their stand against fascism at this incredible moment and changed the course of history. And it's what is such an amazing book about is about you never know who's going to be a hero. You never know who who's going to be the person who's brave, right? You can guess all you want. No one would have guessed those three men would have been the heroes in that situation. Um, and it's about the legacy of what happened and the legacy for them. And it's such a great, yeah, The Anatomy of a Moment by Javier Sica. This is the most recent book I've read that has just, I just completely loved and, and blew me away. But I mean, I, yeah, my, I could do an infinite number of podcasts about books that I love that affected me. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that, I mean, yours, have, I'm not just saying it because you're in front of me, but Lost Connections and Chasing the Scream have been important to me. Um, oh, thanks, Jason. Just, at the time, yeah, they were so relevant to the work we were doing, but just also the way that you, you managed to deliver the themes that you do. I, when we, Just before we started recording, I was saying that within social outreach, there's, you know, unfortunately you have to think in terms of marketing. And that's something I think that you don't necessarily consciously do it, or you might do, but your books manages to get across points that, academics might not be able to um and and that's why it's so important to me what you do oh thanks Jason it's very important to me when I when I write you know I am a small d democrat right like my one of the things I think about a lot when I'm writing is I think about my parents for example my parents are intelligent people who left school when they were 15 right um didn't have the education opportunities that, that I got that they fought for me to have 
and worked very hard for me to have. And um, I always think, you know, could my mum and dad understand this? Am I telling this story in a way that would convey what I'm saying to them? Um, which is not at all about dumbing it down, because uh, they are, you know, as I say, they're intelligent people, but it's about, uh, you know, I can't remember who said that. Uh, um, Jemima Khan told me once this, 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 this quote, and I think about it all the time, um, I don't think it was a thought original to her, but it might have been. I don't want to do a disservice if it's not. She said, you know, true intelligence is not making simple things sound really complex. True intelligence is making complex things comprehensible to everyone, right? And I think it's so tempting when you want to look clever to say something that's deliberately obscure. And this is a real cancer at the moment on, you know, my part of politics. So you have a lot of people, you know, in the left who try to talk in these... People like Slavoj Žižek who just talk in this ridiculous way that's anti-democratic and often that hides the fact that, I mean, in his case, I mean, this is not true of the left generally at all, but in his case, I think it hides the fact he doesn't really have very much to actually say, but the, the might be unfair on him, I don't know, but the, the, so yeah, I'm always trying to talk in that kind of democratic way if I possibly can. So is there a song that might get you kind of worked up in a good way or, and the opposite as well, is there a song that you will go to that would come bring you down, relax you? So I thought of a few when you sent me this question. So the song Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. That, that's, uh, I think in terms of revving me up, I would say Boogie Shoes. Do you know Bust Your Windows by Jasmine Sullivan? I actually, no, I actually don't. You would know the opening, I bust the windows of your car, and though it I'll, didn't I'll fix Google my it. broken heart, uh, it's a good, that's a really good kind of anger song. Uh, do you know, I, I Could Be a King by the Scottish band The, the Dunwells. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. I like that. Uh, those would be my ones to rev me up. In terms of chilling me out, I would say, do you know Way Over Yonder in the Minor Key by Woody I Guthrie? I absolutely adore that song. Yeah. What a great song. Yeah. What a f- absolute B- Billy Bragg has done a great version. Yeah, I love Billy, yeah. Billy Bragg. I love Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg's got several covers of it, and I love all of them. Well, he's got yeah. quite a slow one and quite a fast one. Uh, also, do you know the band The Magnetic Fields? Uh, I do, but I can't think of anything they've done. Oh, my God, you should listen to that, like... This is such a gift to you, Jason. Go and listen to the magazine. Right. But um, 69 Love Songs, the album, is just completely incredible. But if I had to choose a song from that, and I could choose loads, I would name there's a song called Busby Berkeley Dreams, or Busby Barkley Dreams, I should say, by the Magnetic Fields. Um, opening line is, I should have forgotten you long ago. It's a great, great song. Any any 70s Dolly Parton, like, here we go, there you go again. Here you come again, sorry. Uh, yeah. <coughs> I must yeah. admit, I like, I, I like Islands in the Stream. I can't oh, help it. Amazing. Yeah. And Kenny Rogers just died, so. I know, yeah. Oh. yeah. On, on that poor note, um, yes. <laughs> is there a documentary that, that has meant something to you? Because, um, again, documentaries have been a brilliant source of education for me. You know, I, I fully hold my hands up that it's, I've learned a lot from them. Is there anything that you've connected to that's changed your perspective or that just sticks out for you? Yeah, there's a. I think the best documentary ever... I mean, I've watched a lot of documentaries. I love documentaries. Um, but I think the, the the one that is like a, a towering masterpiece is The Act of Killing by Josh Oppenheimer. Have you seen it? I actually haven't, no. It's staggeringly great. I, I know Josh Oppenheimer slightly, and I, I'm just in awe of him. I think he's one of the clever... I think he might be the cleverest person I've ever met, in fact. Um, he, apart from Noam Chomsky. Um, he... <laughs> um, but So The Act of Killing is... Um, so in the mid-1960s, backed by the CIA, the Indonesian military staged a holocaust in Indonesia. That's not too strong a word. 
<clears throat> they killed about half a million people, um, people who were accused of being communists, a whole range of people, anyone who was a dissident, effectively. And that uh, military junta remained in power and it sort of evolved over time, but there's there's never been a time when that power structure was overthrown. So there's never been any justice for the half a million people who were killed. So Joshua Oppenheimer arrives in Indonesia and he wants to try to explore this silence around the, the Holocaust that had happened there. And he had this genius idea. So he gets three perpetrators of the monstrous crimes. And he says to them, I would like to give you the resources to make a documentary about what you did from your perspective. And that's what the act of killing is. It's a documentary where these people then make a film about their own crimes. And without giving too much away, as they do it, they begin to break down, they begin, fractures begin to emerge in the story they tell, and it becomes this remarkable story about violence and repression and the the stories we tell ourselves about who we are um it, it, i mean it's it's a it's a, 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 a complete masterpiece he's he's it, I, I just can't recommend it highly enough i'm totally going to look that up because that yeah, sounds it's incredible exactly, yeah. how, how important are documentaries to you do you can you take them or leave them or do you actually no i love documentaries them? i just watched tiger king Have you oh, seen it everybody's yet? going on about that yeah it's, it's on my watch list it? I haven't done yet, no. Right, do it, do it. I, I love documentaries. I absolutely love documentaries. I love, um, yeah, non-fiction filmmaking, I think, is really uh, exciting and, 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 you know, at its best, it's just amazing, completely Is there amazing. any any directors in particular that, you, that stand out for you? Um, James Gay Reese, who made Amy and uh, Senna and Maradona, the producer with Asif Kapadia, uh, those are really Amy is the film about Amy Winehouse and the other two are obviously about Edson Senna and yeah, I love Senna mm. um, I think he's really great I think uh, James Marsh who made Man on Wire and Project Nim yeah. is completely brilliant uh, I mean there's just so many good documentary makers at the moment um, I think the team at Raw um, Dimitri and Bart Layton and um, in fact another great documentary I won't talk about too much is The Imposter have you seen that? Yes, yes. Yeah. Ah, oh, the twist in the imposter. I saw it in a movie theatre in Washington DC, and it's the only time I've ever I won't say what the twist is, but when you realise what's really happened, it's the only time I've ever heard an entire audience gasp as one. Right? Like it was like, What? Uh, that's a great yeah, the imposter is amazing. Um yeah. And again, that's what I love about documentaries, is that you can present them in such a way that that are real life, but you can also do them as a drama to get people invested yeah. all over again. Well, and also people will go with extraordinary twists in nonfiction that you could never do. If the twist mm. in The Imposter happened in a novel, you would throw it across the room. You'd be like, this is bullshit, right? Yeah. Or Three Identical Strangers, I don't know if you've seen that. No, the, no. The, the sort of twist in it, it's about, uh, well, triplets who were separated at birth. Um, the twists as that story develops when they're reunited, you just think, yeah, in a fiction, you'd just be like, this is absolutely absurd and this couldn't possibly have happened. What the fuck are you talking about? So, yeah, it's an amazing thing, yeah. The Fear of 13 was one of the ones that got to me because I had no expectations. Mm. I went to a press screening and, yeah, I, I felt ashamed when I came out after having watched it because it was just so... And it's something you you struggle to talk... Because I, I ended up interviewing the producer 
and it was very difficult to talk about because you just don't want to give anything away within it. And I those, haven't seen this. What's it called? The Fear of Thirteen. So it's about oh. um, a guy on death row, Nick Yaris, oh. and he ended up requesting requesting his own execution. Oh, um, and it's uh, it was on Netflix. I hope it still is, but it's definitely worth a watch. And it's such a unique documentary in the way that it's set as well, because it's basically him to camera throughout the whole documentary. Hmm. But it works. It really does. Hmm. Um, and the last question in appreciation, um, it's really poignant to now, but have you got an unsung hero that you want to sort of get out there and nominate and sort of look, draw awareness to? Because at the moment, as, as, we go, as we're speaking the coronavirus, we're all invested in the NHS and all the people on the front line that are working. Is there anybody that you potentially want to highlight? Well, Angela Merkel, when she did her address to the German people about coronavirus, which I recommend people watch on YouTube, um, did this really beautiful tribute in the middle of her talking about it, her address to the people in the in, you know, she said I want to talk about I'm not getting the words right, but she said something like I want to address a group of people who've been not had enough thanks or praise for a very long time and she talked about people in the supermarkets who are stacking the shelves, who are keeping it going who are really taking a risk with their health mm -hmm. to keep our society going one of the things I've been thinking about a lot in this crisis is how, what can we do to pay tribute to the people who have kept us going? You know, for such a long time, as a culture, we have, you know, saying I write about in Lost Connections, it's one of the reasons we're so depressed, is our values have become so corrupted. You know, we've, 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 we've valued, we've looked for happiness in the wrong places, we've valued the wrong things. You know, we've, we've, we've valued billionaires and bankers and Instagram influencers. And actually... You know, when we're against the wall, who do we actually need? We need, you know, bin men and cleaners and supermarket stackers and nurses and, you know, and research scientists. And one of the things I hope can come from this is a kind of shift in our values. And what can we do to honour those people? I think one of the best things we can do is campaign for a much higher minimum wage. You know, um, they always deserved that. They especially deserve it now. Um, so there's all sorts of things that we can we can um yeah we we should be doing i think there's unsung heroes all around us you know and there'll be stories of incredible how I many there's four doctors in the nhs have already died uh all of them by the way you know from immigrant backgrounds um you know the kind of people who were slagging off immigrants are the kind of people who are going to be saved by them irrespective of whether they slag them off or not um so yeah i think it's really they're all around us, right? Let's move on to our quick fire ending for this. Okay. Um, so this is going to be where I have no idea if you've got any answers for these or not. But okay. This, this is a stupid question, um, but have you got a favourite colour? No. I'm, I'm quite... I'm quite uh, I, I'm not, I don't really get off on visual stimuli that much. It's not really my thing. I don't really get off on looking at paintings or I don't have a very strong aesthetic sense for things like colour and... I mean, I can look at a colour and think, oh, it looks nice, but no, I don't have, I don't have, I can't, oh, I can't honestly say I do. I've, I've never heard that before, that someone is just like, oh, I can take it or leave it. That, that yeah, it's just not really my thing. Yeah. Um, taste and, well, I might know the answer to this, but uh, taste and naughty, something that you, that you like, but you wish you didn't. Uh, I don't wish I didn't like junk food. I wish I didn't like it as much as I do. <laughs> what is something that I like and wish I didn't? I don't think I'm ashamed of any of my tastes. No, I don't think I, I don't, I don't think I would undo, I mean, I would, 
I would add other desires, like I would try to add a desire for salad or something, which is completely lacking within me. But I wouldn't take away the joy that I get from shittier stuff. No, I don't think I... That's a good place to be. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's, it's good that, you know, contentment. Because in in front of me at the moment, I've got, I think, at the moment, five milky bars. Oh, the milky bars are on you. Literally, yeah. And uh, I I did have ten, but I think I've got through about five in a week. (laughs) Which is just... (laughs) Perfect. I really shouldn't. Uh, Have you got a spirit animal, one that you kind of can... Yeah, if I was going to be one, yeah, that that summarises my personality. I love guinea pigs. Uh, I have a deep love for guinea pigs they're the only animals I've ever really deeply bonded with I'm not a massive I wish animals well but I'm not a massive animal person Um, I think I don't know how much guinea pigs are like me but I love a guinea pig and um, particularly baby guinea pigs following their parents and like oinking yeah, that, yeah, I, I love a guinea pig. So I'll choose the guinea pigs as my spirit animal. That's perfect. That do, like I said, you might be able to hear my gerbils over my shoulder. <laughs> um, have you got a, a a visitor attraction that you like? So it could be castle, a museum, anything like that. Is there one that you would, you know, default go to? Oh, there's loads that I love. The sand castle in Blackpool is oh, the best water park in the history of the world. I'm uh, obsessed with that place. I've been oh it recently. Yes, it's completely incredible. It's yeah. it's people haven't been. It's like it's basically like ecstasy for children and adults. It's <laughs> yes, like, yeah. um, so uh, the Sandcastle in Blackpool, um, the, the, the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los oh, Angeles wow. is a deeply weird and hilarious place. Um, God, there's so many. I'm trying to think of ones I've been to recently. Um, yeah, I got there's loads. Yeah. And have you got a mental screensaver? So if you're thinking of nothing else, would would you have anything that's flashing up? So it could be fish, woodlands, anything that remotely springs to mind. Probably pictures of Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't know. I don't <laughs> that's that's a, good enough. Yeah. I don't have a soothing. All of my soothing things are around people and words. They're not really images, um, other than you, images of hot men. <laughs> perfectly fine. Yeah. Have you have you got a stupid joke that you like? They would all be Joan Rivers jokes that are too offensive to to count as stupid. But there's one where she said, um, I really hate housework. I was thinking about this the other day because of the coronavirus that we're doing my housework. I really hate housework. It's so dumb. It seems so pointless. You have to clean everything, spend ages cleaning everything. And then six months later, you have to do it all again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right for us, definitely. <laughs> she said, least... she also said, if God had wanted me to bend down, he would have put diamonds on the floor. <laughs> See, I love that twisted way of looking. I, I, my answer for that was uh, Dimitri Martin because I think he's got such a weird way of looking at the world and I love it. Oh. Um, if you got a revelation that we, you could uh, put out there, so something that you do when you're alone in your own head, something that makes you a bit weird and quirky that you don't really want to admit to. Well, I've been doing something recently. I don't know how weird it is, but I think it's a bit quirky. It's, it's, it's been a very strange experience since this, all this coronavirus thing happened. I've been watching lots of webcams from places I have been in my life. So if you just Google, for example, I'm from Edgware, in, in, I grew up in Edgware at the end of the Northern Line. If you just Google Edgware webcam, it brings up webcams in Edgware, right? So you can look at webcams. So I was looking at webcams in Provincetown and um, where I used to live in New York on, on Ninth Avenue and all sorts of different places. Uh, I've been looking at a lot in Las Vegas because I've been spending a lot of time in Vegas for something I'm writing. And it's been an extraordinarily creepy experience because you can watch the whole world go still and silent. These places that seem to me so completely different, you know, um, my dad's village in Switzerland and um, 
Provincetown and Byron Bay and just watching these webcams and watching just all of them go silent and empty out is a really... Uh, it's the thing that's most given me a sense of, oh, this is... This is the whole world this has happened. This is our whole species. You know, it's, it's a very powerful and quite disconcerting experience. And I love the fact as well that so many little towns of like in, if you go to the new forest it's always taken over by ponies but now we've got places that are taken over by wild boar and stags yeah. and goats it's just you know the world has just gone completely different and the very last question because you've been really patient you've given me up your pretty much your whole evening oh. um a starstruck crush so you've met loads of people and you've got loads of very interesting friends but is there someone that you would like to meet it could be past or present that would just make you just melt well if in this hypothetical world I can go back in time... Totally, yeah. Marlon Brando, as he was in Streetcar Named Desire, partly because Marlon Brando was the most good-looking man who's ever lived at that time, also partly because he was actually a really intelligent, like a really, like really fascinating, clever uh, person at the kind of cutting edge of... Uh, and partly because I think he's one of the very few uh, of the super, super, super hot people that you would want to meet who I think might have been interested in me. Not because there's something so great about me, but because he did have sex with James Baldwin. He almost certainly had sex with James Baldwin, the writer, um, who was, uh, I mean, like an infinitely better writer than me. But the fact that he would, but not like a hottie. So, um, yeah, I think I would probably choose Brando. But I want to be very, I want to stipulate very clearly it's Brando in Street Crime Desire, not Brando as he was in Apocalypse Now or any of the subsequent films. <laughs> or or Godfather. Dad. Yeah, exactly. I want I want the right Brando. But um, I mean I would like to meet Marlon Brando in any iteration, but the yeah, if I can if my time machine can have specific dial set, that's the one I would I think that's the person I would I would choose. Um that sounds like a good party game as well, choose your Brando. Yeah, oh my god, Joe. Well my mother once said, you know, said to me, and my mother's Scottish, she said, When I met your dad he looked like Marlon Brando in Street Car Named Desire. I didn't realise I'd end up fucking married to the one from Apocalypse Now. <laughs> so that was the... That's it. I can't thank you enough for answering those oh, questions. Cheers, I, I feel like that we've got a, a really good insight into, into your coping mechanisms, into, into your cerebral world. Um, so thank you so much. Oh, for... thank you, Jason. I just want to say um, I really admire you and the work you've done with UK Leap has been completely amazing. And it's really shifting the debate. And I see lots of people, lots of people whose minds are being changed by the work that you're doing. And I think in any circumstances to do that work would be heroic and amazing. But the particularly that you do it with the health challenges that you've had is something I hugely, hugely admire. And I really recommend people look up the excellent piece you wrote for, I think, The Independent about about some of these. Um, was yeah, it the, yeah the, the, about, about um, some, some of these questions. And, and I really recommend people listen to uh, your brilliant podcast, Stop and Search. Um, I also wanted to say, because uh, people have got a lot of time at the moment, also a lot of people have got a lot more time. If you want to listen to um, audio uh, of, on of me interviewing lots of people about depression and anxiety, it's all for free on the book's website. It's www.thelostconnections.com. And if you're interested in the drug war, um, again, you can hear lots of interviews with me with some of the world's leading experts about addiction, if you go to www.chasingthescream.com. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Jason. 
thank you so much for listening on So I Start a Revolution from My Bed. And thank you so much, Johan, for being the first guest. And I really do urge you to check out his work, Chasing the Scream and Lost Connections. Both are amazing books and very relevant to the things that we discussed. And if you do need any help, don't forget The Calm Zone. This podcast is a support of The Calm Zone. They have a helpline, 0800-585-858. They can do a web chat. Please do donate, thecalmzone.net slash donate. And just make sure you keep talking. And while I'm on the thank yous, thank you so much for Nikki, the producer of this show, and also to Jitter Jazz for the music. Thank you so much for everything you do. And thank you, my name is Ad for the artwork. And I'll see you again very soon for the next episode. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.